And please pray with me. Lord, it's good for us to affirm that indeed this is the word of the Lord, uh, that you have spoken, and that you take that word by your spirit and apply it to our hearts. Lord, in a very true sense, you are the preacher this morning. Uh, so we pray that you would speak to us uh, to the end, that the power of the gospel would be brought to bear, that we might be changed, that we would grow in you, that we might come to faith in you. Lord, that um, in every way you would uh, bring the truth of your word, make it manifest among us, that we would delight in it, and that we would be not only hearers of it, but doers uh, for the glory of your name and for the good of this community and of this city and indeed of this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a little over a week ago, a scientist uh, by the name of Francis Haugen gave testimony before the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee about the internal workings of Facebook and Instagram. And she explained, among other things, about algorithms, what an algorithm is, how it works. Uh, and, and as I understand it, an algorithm is a bit of computer programming that decides for you and me what content gets pushed you know, into our feed, onto our computer screens. These algorithms, of course, they're incredibly sophisticated. They're not only sophisticated, they are closely guarded uh, secrets of high-tech companies. But they're designed to basically do one thing, and that is to keep you online as long as possible so that the tech companies will make as much money as possible. But the real bombshell of Francis Haugen's uh, testimony had to do not so much with the existence of algorithms and how they work, but the way they work, the way they keep you and me online. And she explained it in this way. She said, they work so that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site. They'll click on less ads and they'll make less money. So, for example, if you're a teenage girl who's got, who struggles with body image, the algorithm is not designed to direct you to positive body image content. It pushes you toward the exact opposite, toward messages and images to make you feel more insecure. If you've got a propensity to political extremism, you're not driven toward a more balanced perspective. You're taken to more inflammatory content, all with the aim of keeping you and me obsessing and online. And the question, it seems to me, is why does that work? Why is it, you know, that, that what keeps us engaged is the very thing that's terrible for us? Well, the reason it works, it seems to me, is because of the way we are. We're attracted to that. You know, tech companies with their acres of server farms and billions of dollars of research and armies of Ivy League programmers you know, all employed to design the most sophisticated and effective algorithm to drive you and me to stay online. In fact, that whole enterprise is, in the end, a process of discovery of what's always been true of the human heart. And that is, as the prophet Jeremiah put it, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So sick that we are more interested in the thing that's terrible for us than the thing that's good for us. Now, I realize, you know, quoting Jeremiah there, I realize that idea flies in the face of some of our deepest cultural convictions about how our hearts work. I, 
You know, we're in this series on the Ten Commandments. I imagine if we just wandered down to the plaza and grabbed someone off the street and said, you know, here's the Ten Commandments. If you were to add an eleventh, what would it be? And, and, you know, I imagine there's a good likelihood the eleventh commandment might be something like follow your heart. That's a good commandment. Follow your heart. And, you know, that's kind of the subplot of every Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie that's ever been made and every Hallmark movie that's been made, Follow Your Heart. But here's where it gets problematic. Every terrorist, every sex trafficker, every person who steals your spot in the parking lot at Trader Joe's is doing what? They're following their heart. <laughs> I was reminded of this recently, you know, of the time when I'd forgotten about this, but, you know, when, when the actor and director Woody Allen left his wife for their adopted daughter. And someone asked him, you know, it's a big scandal. Rightly so. And, you know, someone asked, you know, how could you do such a thing? And his answer was, the heart wants what it wants. He's following his heart. And I get into that because it's, it's vital that we understand, you know, not only the particular command of this week, but, but that all of these Ten Commandments come to us as something of a repudiation of following the heart. And that's God's grace. It's grace that keeps us from grasping after truth by relying on something so fickle and desperately sick and deceptive as our hearts. I cannot even get out of the cereal aisle quickly because I can't, I don't know, I can't make a decision. Now, as we've looked at these commandments, we've been reminded each week that that we're not really understanding them if we're dealing with them only in terms of their immediate application. Um, you know, like, don't murder. Okay, you know, um, no problem. I will not murder, and now I've fulfilled the commandment. Well, you're not really understanding the fullness of it, right? And so, so while they certainly do have immediate application, you really shouldn't murder, um, there's, there's a world of broader implications. Um, these commandments are something like the doorways at Meow Wolf. I don't know if you've been to Meow Wolf, but, you know, there's a place in that house when you wander in and you walk in and there's just a kitchen. Looks like your standard kind of 1970s kitchen and there's a refrigerator and you, can, you could stand there and go, I get it, it's a refrigerator. But what you find actually is when you open the refrigerator, it's an entryway into a whole new world. A whole new world's open before you. Now this week we're looking at the command that prohibits adultery, and we can't look at this as nothing more than the door of a fridge, uh, considering only the immediate application, assuming that all is in there is the contents of a refrigerator, because if we were to do that, then every unmarried person in here would check out, and also every married person who's managed to steer clear of an extramarital affair would check out, but this command speaks to all of us. We've got to open the door. We've got to enter this world and all of its implications for us. Um, implications that center around a biblical understanding of marriage, which has something to do with all of us, whether we're married or single. Now, when I was in college, I took a sociology course where we were looking at the high rate of divorce in our country, and the professor put a question to the class. He, he said, you know, given the high rate of divorce, you know, would you all say that we live in a, in a kind of an anti-marriage culture? And, you know, we all kind of looked at it and we were, you know, the class was kind of like, yeah, I mean, look at the divorce rate. And, and he quickly said, you're completely wrong. We, we love marriage in this culture so much, we do it again and again and again. <laughs> 
over and over again. And, and I've, I've thought about that because I think he was right, and I think he was more right than he even knew in a very important sense, that even though, you know, marriage rates have declined, people are getting married later, cohabitation is more common, there remains in the human heart this persistent thing that refuses to let go of the hope of exclusive fidelity that marriage promises, right? We can't let go of that. We keep going after it. We get married again and again and again. And that remains true. That, that is true of our heart, you know, in spite of all the assertions that marriage is outdated, it's antiquated, it's ridiculous, you know, as the argument goes, it's ridiculous to require a piece of paper to prove my love. You know? But in fact, there remains, again, something deep within us that insists whatever particular arrangement we want to invent for ourselves, that in fact, I want that piece of paper. I want something that proves the depth of love and relationship that I long for because my heart was made for a love that will say to me, I'm in this with you no matter what. Sickness and in health, by covenant, by vow, poverty, wealth, whatever may come your way, my heart wants a relationship in which it, there is a definitive, I am yours and you are mine forever. So not only is the institution of marriage universal, I think the hopes attached to it are universal as well because human beings were made for lifelong, faithful, covenant relationship. That's, that's how our hearts were made. So we can't even begin to understand this commandment prohibiting unfaithfulness unless we understand first that we were actually created for faithfulness. We long for it. We, are, we have an insatiable appetite for it, for a relationship with the God who made us in his image for himself. And that's why, you know, if we were to do a kind of a biblical survey on how God's covenant with his people is described, you will find, if you just did a survey, you would find more often than not, it's described in terms of a marital relationship. Uh, including the covenant we're looking at here, the one being made at Sinai. Ezekiel describes it in terms of marriage. You might remember if you were here, um, when we looked at this first command, the command that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. When we looked at that command, we, we said, you know, it's vital. If you want to understand it, you've got to take it in a marital sense. And in particular, that part of the command where God says, you shall have no other gods before me, or literally in the Hebrew, no other gods before my face. That, that phrase evokes the, this kind of picture of uh, the violation of a marriage vow. You know, so that to turn from the true God to, in trust of another God is akin to, uh, you know, your spouse brazenly bringing another lover into the relationship and saying it's all going to work out great. All while, you know, while supposing the marriage can stay intact. You know, God is saying there, of course it can't. And it's not unreasonable to think that that can't work. So when God enters into covenant with his people, it's, it's that kind of relationship, a marital relationship, a sickness and in health, forsaking all others, till death do we part, you know, exclusive kind of love. So that to, to bring another love in wouldn't be just to diminish the relationship, it would be to actually destroy it. And that means, I think, well, not I think, 
That means the command to have no other gods before me isn't coming from this place of unfairness or overly exclusivity uh, or demandingness. It means that God's love for his people is, in fact, quite intense. It means his desire for them is to enjoy a life-giving, lifelong relationship of devotion. Him loving us supremely, us loving him supremely with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, forsaking all others, right? In fact, you know, reading on in Exodus, we're, we're, we're going to conclude our series with the Ten Commandments in this book, but if you were to read on and read about the Lord's leading Israel in the wilderness, it's, it's construed very much in terms of God taking his bride from the wedding to their home, uh, kind of wooing her along the way, where they would dwell together in mutual joy with one another. And that's why along the way, when Israel turns to idols, it's described as a violation of the marriage vow. It's described as a breaking of this seventh command. It's described as adultery. And yet, what we've got to see at the very same time is that there is a faithful spouse. It's just not us. The book of Hosea is, in fact, an entire object lesson in which God's people learn of the intensity of God's faithfulness, largely through the lens of their own, un own unfaithfulness. And this is the book where God tells this man, Hosea, to go and marry the most notorious, unrepentant prostitute in town so that he would learn, you know, not about his own faithfulness, but about God's faithfulness. And, you know, that... I commend that book to you. Go and read it. You can read it this afternoon. And, you know, but the wild thing is at the end of it, you know, Hosea describes the Lord toward the end of that book as crying out as the faithful spouse to an unfaithful people saying this, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. That's the Lord speaking. Out of love for his people, the Lord's affection for his people is so intense, in fact, that there are other places where he refers to his people almost by, like, pet names. You know, like, like a spouse has, like some of you have, and you, no one knows your little names for each other, but you've got them for each other. You know, there's, like, little, little lovey nicknames. So in Isaiah, God s says of Israel, you know, I'm going to call you Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her, my little lovey. And he, said, he goes on to say, you know, the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Intense love, marital love, spousal faithfulness. In the end, no one speaks of, that, of this relationship more plainly than Isaiah when he says to all of God's people, again, young and old, single and married, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a, a wife who married young only to be rejected. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I'll bring you back. I hope we can see the depth and the intensity of the relationship the Lord desires with his people. I am scratching the surface. What's vital to understand is that God didn't sort of latch on to marriage as a way for us to, you know, by way of analogy in some way through our human experience, come to understand his love for us. It's actually the other way around. He created marriage for that very purpose. He created it that we would know of his love for us. And to, to understand that, we need to understand what he created when he made marriage. Now, for me, one of the most striking chords, you know, in the Bible 
is the statement before humanity's fall, uh, rebellion and fall into sin in Genesis 2 was that there was a not good. Everything in creation was good. Sin had yet to come in the world. It was good, 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 not good. And the thing that was not good was the aloneness of Adam. And so God says, I will, that's not good. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, there is something to contemplate. I'm not going to spend time on this, but there is something to contemplate about what it means that Adam is in the position of needing help and Eve is in the position of being the help. But all the same, I want to, I want to notice that Adam isn't exactly alone. He was surrounded by a glorious, unmarred by sin creation. There were birds, there were animals, there were livestock. It's probably a black lab by his side. Um, but still, it was said that he was alone because there wasn't a helper fit for him. And I just want to pause here for a second to say, you know, there was a time in my pastoral ministry, in the early years of my pastoral ministry, where I served a church that was comprised, not entirely, but almost by single people. You know, young single men, young single women, you know, and as a pastor, I would often scratch my head and wonder how is it that I've got all these young single Christian men and all these young single Christian women and very few of them are getting married, so you, might you, know, you also might imagine the fault lay in almost entirely with the men. And so periodically, I would get with these guys, and I would be like, what's the deal? And one of my questions was, you know, what are you looking for? And very often, they would spend time telling me the kind of person they were looking for. And by the end of it, my reaction was usually this. It sounds to me like you are looking for another you. And the last thing you need is another you. And, you know, I tell that story because that was true of Adam, too. The last thing Adam needed was another one just like him. So God acted on behalf of Adam, not by creating another animal, not by giving him another Adam, but by creating a woman. And he created her by taking a part of Adam. You've heard this in weddings, I'm sure, the part closest to his heart giving her a name that reflected the closeness, the complementarity of the relationship with the man. He called her woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew really captures the language richly. The woman is isha, the man is ish. Everything about he and she, him and her, they spoke of fitting together, complementarity, intensely bound up relationship with one another in nature and in name. One writer put it this way, when man and woman come together in this one flesh relationship in the context of marriage, it's not only a union, but a kind of reunion. Adam and Eve, as Ish and Isha, were literally made for each other. God created marriage to be, in nature, design, and aim, a covenant between a man and woman, a monogamous one flesh relationship, which produces, if he so wills, children. That, that is the foundation of Christian sexual ethics. Now, that's what God did. But then the question is, why? Why did he do it? Was it because Adam was lonely and kind of walking around the garden, hangdog, kicking, kicking the dirt, going, man, it's so lonely? No. We, it, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Adam complained about his situation. In fact, God was the one who saw it wasn't good. God noticed that. God acted out of his own initiative so that we might enjoy and gain in life what I would call godly insight, whether you're married or not. 
And Paul explains the significance of this insight in Ephesians 5, where he's been teaching about marriage and how God calls husbands and wives to relate to one another in that, in that union, reminding them what God did in creation, saying, therefore, he's quoting from Genesis 2, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says something profound. And, and I, you know, in fact, I think this is the only place where Paul actually says, the thing I'm going to tell you is profound. And, and what he's describing as profound is the marital union. And he says this, the mystery, that is the mystery of marriage, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? For starters, again, it means that God wasn't sort of sifting through our world of human experience and going, well, I could do it with sports or eating or, you know, I'm, what, what could I use? Oh, you know what? These people seem to be into the marriage thing, into pairing up, into having sex, and you know what? I'm going to use that for them to come to understand me. That's not what he did. He wasn't grasping for analogies. Paul reminds them instead of what God made at his initiative for his glory and our good and then reveals its purpose. He opens the door. And he says that the relationship between Christ and his church is the paradigm for marriage. The paradigm for the relationship between a husband and wife. Jesus' love for his people, in other words, is the painting and marriage is the artist proof. That's the mystery that the union of Christ and his church, his people, finds expression in human experience by a man and a woman becoming one flesh in marriage. It means he designed our sexuality to work toward the end that we would know his love for us. It means he designed our relationships to work to the end that we would come to know and enjoy him. And it means that he gave the gift of marriage between a man and a woman to the end that we would come to know the deep, deep love of Jesus. And, and it means because, because Christ's love for his church is the artist's original and marriage is the artist's proof because it's the template and we get sort of the duplicate, it means that the ultimate aim in this life is union with Christ, a relationship with him. That, that union which comes by repentance and faith is the sun so that marriage is something like the moon that reflects the light. It's not the source of the light, but it radiates it. And because that's true, we can avoid the error of insisting that marriage is the ultimate in life, as good as it is, even as we can avoid the error of thinking that if we're single, marriage has nothing to do with us, or that marriage is only about the love between two people, whomever they may be, doing whatever they want, so long as it doesn't harm anybody. And incidentally, that to me is, is the most pitiful, low standard for any kind of relationship. You don't hurt anybody because it, it, it actually ignores to our detriment this beautiful thing God has wrought that, that we've been deeply woven together relationally with one another in friendship, in family, in community. That matters. But in Jesus Christ... Christians see the substance of that mystery re revealed that all of us, single or married, would have union with Jesus, would have our faith in him. Whether you're a man or a woman, guess what the Bible refers to you if you're a Christian? You're the bride. He's the bridegroom. It's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7, after speaking of the advantages of his own singleness, 
that whatever your marriage status, each has their own gift from God, one, one of one kind and one of another. It's, it's why when Jesus speaks of heaven, of life and the resurrection, he says that people aren't married or being given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Because, why is that? Because the picture is no longer needed because you're in the presence. No more artist proofs. You've, you've come into the possession of the original. I had a professor in seminary who told us a story about when he was um, deployed uh, at a military base in Germany. He had a picture of his wife by his bed. And uh, he said, you know, every night I would kiss that picture. Love you, Gracie. You know, he did that every night. Did it for months. And then the day came when he came back to the military base. And the plane landed on the tarmac. And you've seen these scenes. You know, there's the stairway and all the spouses are there waiting. And, and he said, you know, what would, it, what would it have looked like if my wife had run up to me and I just said, hold on a second, and took out the picture and kissed the picture? What, what was once a great picture of devotion now becomes, you know, offensive because the real thing is there. Jesus wants us to know of the real thing. Of, of what the real meaning of marriage is, of what we were made for. So when Jesus speaks of life in heaven, life in the resurrection, he doesn't say people are married or given in marriage, but they're like angels because, again, we're in the presence. We come to the real thing. We can put the picture away. All of that deepens the meaning of this command. It expands its authority. It widens its scope because God desires more than a bare obedience. He desires a bride. But again, we're looking at a command, so how do we keep it? Well, you could come at this command as a legalist. You could just not cheat on your spouse. You could take a purity pledge. You can put filters on your internet, you know. You, you could also come at it with licentiousness. You could just blow it off. You could just say, you know, I make my own rules. I decide what will make for my own life and thriving. I, I'm gonna, I, I get to decide whom I get to love or who not to love. But as opposite as those approaches may seem, legalism or licentiousness, the reality is that the algorithm at the center of the operating system that is your heart and mine is fundamentally identical. Because what fuels legalism and what fuels licentiousness is a deep heart conviction that I will do it on my terms, that I will follow my heart. I will make a life for myself. I will pull the levers of my human capacity. I will not depend on anyone. I will become my own God. But thankfully, the Lord has not left us to our own devices. He sent his son to free us from rule-keeping and rule-breaking, that we would rely on him. And he reveals the key to entering into and enjoying the fullness of commands, seeing, you know, more than the refrigerator door, but opening the world showing us that the only way to enter that world begins with knowing actually how deeply unfaithful we are. How unmanageable this command is on its own terms for us to keep. By showing us that the beginning of obedience begins with owning up to our disobedience. The key to purity begins with knowing how actually impure we all are. The key to holiness begins by reckoning with our unholiness. The key to keeping the command begins, in other words, with knowing that we're command breakers. That we're all adulterers. All that we would embrace him by faith and his faithfulness and his holiness and his obedience for us. 
Jesus gets into this in some depth in his very first sermon, very first sermon in his public ministry. He shows the truth of this by going right after these commands. He frames this commandment in a very interesting way, not in terms of rule keeping, not even in terms of rule breaking, but in terms of righteousness. And he, he begins by saying this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the thing about this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were Super Bowl champion, Nobel Prize winning, gold medal wearing rule keepers. If righteousness could be attained by rule keeping, these people would have done it. I promise you, not you, not me, not anyone we've ever known, including my saintly Meemaw, were ever as righteous as these guys. And that's a problem for us because Jesus doesn't just say, unless you equal the righteousness of the scribes and the teachers, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't enter of heaven. He says, you've got to exceed it. Which is essentially like saying to any of us, I'm going to take you outside right now and you just need to beat Usain Bolt's world record in the 100 meter. And then we're good. And if that weren't enough to lay you low, he goes right after this command, the seventh command. And he says this, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, quoting the command. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, so one minute, Jesus is talking about adultery and immediately he's talking about the afterlife, about heaven and hell, connecting what we do in this life with where we will be in the next life. And if it seems like Jesus is speaking as if the stakes are really high, it's because they are. And when we really take this in, we are left with one option. We have to cry for help. We have to cry out, save me. And then we're really getting somewhere. You see, Jesus speaks this way not because he wants to lay us low, although I think that's in the mix. Um, I think it's because he wants us to know the truth, that our hearts were made for relationship with him. And that begins with knowing that we aren't able to keep the rules and we aren't able to make up our own rules, but instead we are in need of a righteousness, one better and truer and purer than anything I could ever conjure up out of my heart. We're able to see that before you can even begin to follow this command, we must place our faith in the only one who's ever fulfilled it. Not for himself, but for us. That's why we have to hear him when he says, in that same sermon, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's no call to relax the commands. There is a call to holiness, 
but one that we can't conjure up out of ourselves. One that comes by what the scriptures call the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness by faith. A righteousness that you come into possession of, not because of your own obedience, but through the obedience of the one who didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but who came to fulfill them. Jesus, he's talking about himself. He didn't dismiss or diminish or increase the demands of the law, but he did fulfill all of it. Every jot, every dot, every tittle for adulterous people like you and me. So that righteousness before the law becomes ours by faith, freeing us for the first time to actually keep it. Not, not as some terrible burden, but as actually now for the first time as something beautiful. Because of Jesus, because he's the bridegroom, he's the faithful spouse. He's the one who says, my heart is full of compassion for you. That's why he came, that we would be cleansed of sin and that we would attain a righteousness that only he can earn for us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I'm just reminded of how you walked with your disciples after your resurrection and you went to the scriptures and you told them about how everything and the law and the prophets spoke of you. And so, Lord, we pray that um, as we look at these commands, commands that were we to untether them from the gospel would crush us. No one is getting out of here alive apart from your grace. So, Lord, I am thankful that you have loved and pursued adulterous hearts. All of us, Lord, are, are laid low by this command. But Lord, you have given us such a grace in fulfilling it for us, in giving us your faithfulness, in imputing to us, laying upon us your very own perfect, holy righteousness. Lord, which your scriptures describe as, you know, a robe that's wrapped around us as, 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 as adoption, as a new name, as a cleansing Lord, as, as being given a new nature, as, as being brought from death to life, all that speaks to the great thing that you have done in redeeming us. And all of it speaks to how, by faith, we attain a righteousness in you. And, and Lord, we have to remember that when we come to this table because you know how we are. We think we can follow our hearts and it'll be good for us. And you know that we, we are tempted to come to this table or to stay away from it based on our record you know, so that we, on the one hand, deceive ourselves into thinking that we have, you know, are worthy. And on the other hand, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're so unworthy you could never love us. But the gospel speaks a better word. A word that lays low the proud and exalts the humble. So, Lord, we just want to ask that you would attend to us as we come to this table, that we might be fed here. That requires a hunger, that requires um, a desire to be with you. You've given us that desire, Lord, meet us at this table, feed us here. Uh, Lord, help us to um, really be nourished here by your spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.